Hello. Before I begin the podcast, I'd like to throw in a little disclaimer about what I'm going to be talking about in today's episode. In this episode, I will be reading graphic descriptions of murder, violence, sexual violence, torture, and other things that are only suitable for mature audiences. I strongly suggest that if you are under the age of 13, or if you just feel like you won't be able to handle hearing descriptions of brutal serial murders, that you go ahead and turn off the podcast now. No harm, no foul, and everyone's happy. So, as always with this kind of content, listener discretion is heavily advised. With that being said, let's jump into the episode. Hello, and welcome to the Serial Killer Countdown. I'm your host, Jordan McCollum, and this is my new true crime podcast where I talk about the absolute worst serial killers in history, hopefully ones that haven't been talked about to death, uh, no pun intended, and hopefully ones that maybe you haven't heard a lot about. I've always had a morbid fascination with serial killers, finding myself watching YouTube videos about them whenever I have any kind of free time. And I just kind of wanted to do something to share the more interesting ones that I've learned about, so I started this podcast. This is the third episode of the show, and today I'll be talking about a very interesting serial killer that I haven't actually heard a lot about in the media, at least not in the Western media. In my last episode, I discussed a man named Pedro Lopez who committed his crimes in Colombia, Ecuador, and Peru, after growing up in extremely rough poverty, which I believe played a major part in him becoming the brutal killer that he eventually became. You know, uh, living in poverty, just just being taken advantage of by everybody in his life, uh, things of that nature. In this episode, however, the man I will be talking about is almost the polar opposite of Pedro Lopez. I discussed last week the concept of nature versus nurture when it comes to serial killers, and I thought Pedro Lopez pretty much personified a serial killer who was made into a killer by external forces. But the man I'm talking about today, to me, is a man who was not made into a killer because of his upbringing. I believe that he was just born the way that he was. At least, it seems that way to me after reading up about who he was. And that man is named Javed Iqbal, also known as Kukri. Now, that nickname might not sound too disturbing at first, but a Kukri is actually a special kind of knife with which Javed Iqbal committed most of his murders, bringing an entirely new connotation to the nickname, at least to me anyway. Javed Iqbal's confirmed murder count is 100 boys throughout Pakistan. Surprisingly, These 100 murdered boys are the only murders that Iqbal is assumed to have committed, unlike the other two killers that I have already talked about, who both are suspected to have killed much more than they originally let on. Javed Iqbal is a very interesting serial killer to me because, unlike most serial killers who are eventually caught because they make some careless mistake, like we saw with Luis Garavito and Pedro Lopez, whom I talked about already. The only real reason that Iqbal was caught was because he eventually just turned himself into police. And it almost kind of reminds me of that scene in Seven, where the main villain, you know, just 
just goes into the police office and turns himself in. That's kind of how I imagine this happening. But we'll get to that eventually. I wanted to start, as I normally do, with Javed Iqbal's childhood. Like I said, Iqbal was not born into poverty. His upbringing was not rough or filled with violence or things of that nature like the other killers I've talked about. In fact, quite the opposite. Javed Iqbal was born in Pakistan in October of 1956 to a very wealthy businessman and trader. His father was an extremely important person and well-regarded in the community, and Iqbal grows up attending prestigious schools and basically trading on his father's name. By 1978, when Iqbal is 22 years old and a college student, his father buys two villas in Pakistan where Iqbal sets up his own steel recasting business, using the villas as a kind of base of, base of operations of his new company. He lives in these villas along with other boys that work at the steel recasting business with him, and while he lives here, multiple criminal charges are filed against him for sexual assaulting and sodomizing children, but because of how powerful his father is and how well respected he is in the community, nothing really ever comes of the charges. His father uses considerable influence in the community basically just to keep his son out of jail. However, he later claims that during the times that he was taken in by police and questioned about these allegations early in his life, the police really roughed him up and brutalized him and beat him very severely, which will come into play later in his life. So this goes on for quite some time. Uh, Iqbal's li Iqbal lives a lavish lifestyle due to his father's wealth until about 1993 when his father passes away. However... This does nothing to hinder Iqbal's lifestyle whatsoever. In fact, it actually almost makes him wealthier because his father leaves him over 3 million rupees and he uses this inheritance to build a massive home complete with a swimming pool and he also purchases uh, multiple vehicles as well. Iqbal also uses this massive inheritance from his father to open many new businesses that we can tell he started with the sole intent of luring young boys in so that he could sexually assault them. These were businesses that young boys tended to frequent very often. One of these businesses was a video game store where Iqbal would leave money on the floor of the shop. If any young boy picked up the money, Iqbal would accuse them of stealing and take them into a back room for what he would call punishment. This tended to be sexual assault, and sometimes he would also sodomize the young boy. The video game store eventually closed, presumably because parents stopped sending their young boys to the shop because of the rumors surrounding what Iqbal was doing inside its walls. But this did not deter Iqbal whatsoever. He opened more businesses aimed at young children, including a general store, a gym, an aquarium, and even a school. You can tell that these businesses were just for Iqbal to lure young children in. None of these businesses uh, stay open very long, possibly due to the same problems that the video game store ran into. Parents got wise to what he was doing, and since the police would do nothing to stop him, they just stopped sending their children to his shops. Due to this, Iqbal starts to try to find other means of searching for victims to sexually assault, and he kind of gets creative. He begins to apply to pin pal programs, and he 
starts to send letters back and forth with many young boys. He begins to basically groom these young boys, convincing them to send him pictures, and he sends them gifts in the mail. He would eventually convince convince these boys to meet him in person, where he would, you guessed it, sexually assault and sodomize the young boys. It's absolutely crazy to me how long Iqbal, Iqbal was able to get away with what he was doing to these boys. I mean... At this point, it's almost been 20 years, and he's never even seen the inside of a jail cell, even though everybody knows what he's doing. If the police had done their job and arrested him, maybe the lives of the 100 boys he eventually killed would have been spared. So life for Iqbal goes on like this until one day he's brutally beaten and robbed by one of his employees. He's hospitalized for over 20 days, and when he's released... He tries to go back to his lavish home only to realize that his estate and all his assets had to be sold in order to pay his hospital bills. This, in effect, makes Iqbal homeless and without any money for the first time in his life. And I believe this is a major stressor in his life. It's the catalyst that pushes him over the edge from sexual assault and sodomy to murder. So because at this point, Iqbal basically has no money, he rents a very rundown apartment in a slum in Pakistan. But he would find that this area provided him with much easier access to his victims than he ever could have imagined. He lives in this slum for around eight months, and in 1999, he sends a letter to police and his local news outlet confessing to the murder of 100 young boys ranging in age from 6 to 16 years old. And this is kind of mind-boggling to me, because as we saw with Luis Garavito and Pedro Lopez, their high volume of murders attracted a lot of attention, and police knew that something strange was going on with all the disappearances. They were eventually caught due to mistakes that they made when they became careless and left enough evidence for police to find them. However, Even though Iqbal had a comparable number of murders to those two killers, nobody really put up any kind of fuss or noticed a rise in disappearances. It took a letter of confession from Iqbal himself for him to even be found out as a serial killer. In this letter, Iqbal claims that he sexually assaulted, sodomized, strangled, and then dismembered the bodies of 100 young boys. He claims that he escaped notice from police by choosing extremely poor street children, runaways, and orphans, which seems to be a running theme in the killers that I've been talking about, and seems to play a big part in how they ended up killing so many and how they went undetected. He disposed of their bodies in vats of hydrochloric acid after he was finished torturing them as well, which also helped... Uh, helped him go undetected from police because there was no bodies for them to find. He would dispose of the vats of acid in a local river once the bodies had been severely disintegrated. So when police arrive at Iqbal's residence after receiving this letter, what they find there just sounds like something straight out of a horror movie. They find bloodstains covering the walls and floors of his apartment. In one room, police find a large chain with which Iqbal claimed to have strangled many of his victims. Police also find multiple bags full of photographs of Iqbal's victims, as well as as just piles and piles of children's clothing. In another room, police find two large vats of acid 
with partially dissolved remains in them. Along with these vats, a note was attached to them stating, The bodies in the house have been deliberately have deliberately not been disposed of so that authorities will find them. In the process of searching Iqbal's apartment, they also find that the weapon that he used to dismember many of the bodies of the young children was a kind of shaped machete popular in India called a kukri. This is the weapon from which he obtains his nickname of kukri, and it kind of just makes it really kind of messed up to me that his nickname derives from the weapon that he used to dismember children. And I can't even imagine what was going through the police officers' minds while they were searching just this den of disgusting evil that was his apartment. Also in his letter, he details why he committed his crimes. He claims that early in his life, he was brutalized and molested by police, and his killings are a sort of sick revenge on them for that. He also claims that street children of Pakistan learn to rob and mug people, and the police do nothing and turn a blind eye, so the citizens have to find their own solutions, and these murders, he claimed, were his solution. Iqbal, however, was nowhere to be found in his apartment. He confessed in his letter to police that he would drown himself in the Ravi River, the same river that he had been dumping the dissolved remains in, before the police would even show up at his house. However, after an exhaustive search of the river, no body was found. So a massive manhunt then begins for Javed Iqbal. Police arrest four teenage boys who allegedly lived with Iqbal in his slum apartment. And police think these boys may be his accomplices. Within just a few days, one of the boys dies while in police, police custody, and in a post-mortem, it is suggested that police brutality caused his death. Seeing news of this teenage boy's death, Iqbal eventually turns himself in to a local newspaper, claiming that he fears going to the police and that they will surely kill him. And this is where I kind of imagine it like the movie Seven in that scene where the villain just shows up and turns himself in, covered in blood from everyone he's killed. But I'm sure it didn't happen that way, but it definitely has that kind of creepy little vibe. It's it's just crazy. So obviously, the newspaper just turns him over to police. And in what can only be described as one of the most brutal rulings by a court in history, at least that I've ever heard of, after his trial, Javed Iqbal is found guilty and is sentenced by the judge to death in the same way that he committed his murders. Specifically, the judge that passed the sentence says, You will be strangled to death in front of the parents whose children you killed. Your body will then be cut into 100 pieces and put in acid the same way you killed the children. And this is just basically an eye for an eye kind of law in Pakistan and it just sounds absolutely brutal and I'm sure many people would say that he absolutely deserved that sentence and that kind of execution. However, before this sentence can be carried out, Javed Iqbal is found dead in his cell of an apparent suicide. And that would be the story of Javed Iqbal. But before I end this episode, I just wanted to once again talk about the whole nature versus nurture thing when it comes to serial killers. 
I think what makes Javed Iqbal so incredibly disturbing to me is that he pretty much had everything he ever wanted in life. He was born to a wealthy family. His father gave him everything he ever asked for, including multiple businesses to run. He never wanted for anything in his entire life. He didn't have a rough childhood. He didn't grow up in poverty. It really kind of shows that just like serial killers who are made that way through some kind of early trauma in their life, there are also killers who are just born that way. And I think that makes them even more interesting and disturbing to think about. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Serial Killer Countdown. Like I've said before, this is the first podcast I've ever even attempted, and just having anyone listen is incredible to me. This is just kind of a new hobby that I'm undertaking, and I'm glad you could join me. I hope to keep producing this podcast, as serial killers really fascinate me, and I'm sure many of you. And if you are enjoying the podcast, please feel free to give me a five-star rating on whatever platform you may be listening. I hope you enjoyed the episode, and you can follow the show on Twitter and Instagram under the username SKC Podcast, all one word. That's SKC Podcast on Twitter and Instagram. You can also follow me on Twitter at twitter.com slash SKC. That's twitter.com slash J-O-R-D-S-K-C. Thank you, and have a great rest of your day.